Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of Reasonably Outrageous. This is your host, Matt Wyrick, alongside Blake Pace on a Tuesday night for you all sometime Wednesday. Uh, with week one of the NFL season in the books, MLB season, currently in September, the stretch run. Uh, we're figuring out which teams will be competing in the postseason. We've got NBA just around the corner. It's a great time to be a sports fan. Blake, how you doing, man? I'm good. I'm actually kind of sad now that I'm thinking about it. We've got two more days until football is back on my television. I saw everybody talking about how we should do double headers for Monday Night Football every week, and I just don't think I could. I would rather go two days without football, a game on Thursday night, Friday without football, then have college football Saturday instead of going double header Monday night. Then all the way till Saturday. I get for the teams, it totally makes sense. I wouldn't want to travel <laughs> to play on Thursday, but for my own sanity, I think we should keep it the way it is so I don't have to go, you know, Tuesday through Friday without any sort of football. We just need better games on Thursday, man. It just seems yeah. like we've well, always... I mean, obviously it was the, the, the season opener, so they're going to have a, a pretty good game last week in the Bears and the Packers, at least on right. paper. Didn't turn out to be all that great. Yeah. But I feel like once we get in the swing of things mid-season, we really don't have like great teams going head-to-head on Thursday Night Football. And I, you know, I get that because there are fewer stars that will play because of injuries and things like that. Oh, yeah. um, but at the same time, you know... If we are going to have Thursday Night Football, I think we need to go a little bit more all-in and, and actually have some good games that they put on. Because as much as I love watching Titans-Dolphins, it's really just not <laughs> the game that I'm looking for on my TV. Yeah, definitely not. Yeah, I think that's just the problem is that it's tough to convince, even even for the teams that you know maybe don't have a great roster but a great offensive scheme in place or something, it's tough to convince them to pull out all the strings on three days of rest And if you're the traveling team, essentially two days of rest, Monday, Tuesday, you travel on Wednesday, play Thursday. It's just such a tough, uh, tough thing for the team's perspective, especially. So I, I, and also, you know, I, for the better teams to play on Thursday night, they'd be kind of pissed if they were, you know, playing some of their more difficult opponents on a short week. So from the marketing standpoint, you know, yeah, it would definitely be more enjoyable to watch games like the Packers and the Bears every Thursday night, but you know, I, I'm fine with – I don't know if I'm fine with it because I, I, I'm thinking back of all the miserable Thursday night games I've put myself through just to watch because football's on. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I mean, for the overall quality of the game, uh, that's a tough one. I, I'm still sticking with what I say. I think I, I wouldn't want to see them get rid of Thursday night just because it's so long between games. But there definitely is uh, some sort of fix in there to figure out what it is. Maybe – I don't even know how you would handle that sort, but uh, we can let the head honchos up in in the (laughs) NFL front offices figure that one out. Yeah, we'll see what they do. But for now, we're going to focus on the podcast here. And we have a new (laughs) segment that we're dropping. Uh, Starting today, we're excited to uh, dive into NFL Stockwatch, uh, something that uh, Blake and I cooked up a little bit earlier today. And we're going to have four different parts uh, that we want to do. We're going to try and mirror the stock market a little bit. Four segments. One, buy, buy, buy. One player, team, or coach that's trending upward. Uh, we'll each pick one. We'll give it a, a 90 seconds each to talk about that. 
a little bit of time to rebuttal, and then we'll move on to the next one to keep things moving. But we want to uh, be able to talk a lot of different topics. So bye bye bye. Uh, will be one sell 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 with one tree one team turning down the opposite uh, a savvy investment where a team or a player or coach might be trending downward but you believe uh, they'll be back on the incline soon uh, or short that stock where there's one team coach or player trending up that you believe will be able to keep it up so I think this is going to be a good way for us to kind of look back at the previous weekend uh, without diving too into the weeds of, of week one uh, or, or the previous week because I know the show comes out on Wednesday so um, you know, at this point, a lot of people aren't going to want to regurgitate what was going on in week one. They want to be able to look forward. Well, this kind of gives us the opportunity to use what has just happened, but also to look forward, uh, looking at what's trending, which way, uh, so that we can kind of keep things moving and not you know, dwell too much on the past uh, on a Wednesday uh, when our first show comes out of the week. So those are our four segments. And without further ado, we're going to go ahead and jump in. So Blake, who are you buy by buying? Dude, you, are you ready for a surprise? I'm ready. Hit me. The New England Patriots. Oh wow, this is a that's <laughs> a, a hot take there, man. I don't Shocker, know. right? But to the extent that I'm going to go, and I'll get into that at the end. Uh, that we always talk about New England, you know, as one of those teams that stumble out of the gate a little, maybe start two and two, maybe three and one with a bad loss in the first four weeks, and then they figure their shit out by week set, six, seven. Uh, but they started off the season in midseason form, week one, and absolutely destroyed the Pittsburgh Steelers, who I still believe are one of the better teams in the NFL. Um, you know, the best thing with the Patriots, what they do is they take away your greatest strength. Pittsburgh's greatest strength is a nasty front seven. Uh, the Patriots' response, they didn't even try to run the football, really. They just went pass heavy with deep concepts. They ran trick plays to keep everyone on their toes. And we'll see this all year. If they're playing a team with a better secondary, they'll play smash mouth football, which they can do with that offensive line in Sony Michelle. If they're playing a team like the Pittsburgh Steelers that are really sound up front, they're going to go pass heavy and utilize Josh Gordon, soon to be Antonio Brown, Julian Edelman across the middle of the field. Um, they're just, they're so good at everything they do. And, and talent this year is the big key. Uh, they have the best secondary in football, I think the best depth at running back, so, so many receiving threats that they had to trade Demarius Thomas because there just wasn't room for him. More than enough high-quality athletes in the front seven. The only thing, they need to get a little bit healthier on the interior offensive line, but aside from that, I think that this team, by the end of the season, will go down as the most talented Patriots squad of this era, and I don't think it'll be close. What I saw on Sunday Night Football... And Matt, this is why I'm bye, 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 because I had them initially as a three seed. I had them in my Super Bowl. But what I saw from Sunday night and just how they destroyed a very talented, well-coached team is I think that this Patriots team could go 16-0 and and has a shot at joining the Miami Dolphins as the only other team in NFL history to go undefeated and win the Super Bowl. And a fun fact on that, uh, this year's Super Bowl is played where, Matt? I actually don't know. It's in Miami, so they'll have a chance to do it in front of the Miami fan base. That is my bye-bye-bye. I think the Patriots are going sky-high this season. I I just can't believe it took me until watching them get on the field week one to realize this. But the the talent is just all – it's there. As if – the Dolphins fan base wasn't going to go through enough this season. Yeah. <laughs> You're telling me they're going to have to watch New England uh, cruise to an undefeated Super Bowl. That's That's got to be a gut punch for the Dolphins uh, faithful. But, 
you know, I, I, it's a slam dunk. Obviously, the, the barring injury, the, the Patriots just yeah. look unbeatable. I mean, you know, unless we start actually seeing the injuries rack up in the secondary and the receiving core and the running back core, Tom Brady, God forbid, uh, there's nothing stopping this team. And, you know, it has the looks of a super team. And I know that in the NFL, that's nearly impossible to assemble, uh, especially in today's day and age. But uh, I can't argue with that. I, they just have so many weapons, so many big names, uh, guys that, you know, the depth is there, that the coaching staff is proven. Uh, there's just so much to like about that team. Uh, I can't argue with it. And honestly, no rebuttal uh, from my yeah. end. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's the thing is that, you know, some of the concerns we've had with New England is they just, maybe they didn't prioritize the front seven enough. But, you know, you take a look at their lineup. Of course, Dante Hightower, they have, they brought in Michael Bennett on the defensive line. Uh, they've got Dietrich Wise on the opposite end. Kyle Van Noy, uh, there's, you know, their other starting linebacker wasn't even playing last night be- or the other night because uh, his wife was in labor. So that's also another starter they didn't have. Secondary is, is so deep. It's the most talented in the league. I just it's miserable to watch again but I really think what we're going to see is just utter domination against every single team this year except maybe you know the likes of of Kansas City in the AFC. All right. Well, I'm going with a less obvious pick here. Uh, <laughs> I think something that uh, I don't think is getting enough attention. Um, but Zach Taylor, the the new head coach of the mm-hmm. Cincinnati Bengals, I really liked what I saw out of that Bengals offense. Uh, Andy Dalton threw for 418 yards, I believe. Yep. He yeah. is, in fact, your leader in NFL passing yards right now, uh, which is pretty crazy. Obviously, we're one week in. That's not going to stay the same. Um But I really liked what we saw to that offense, 429 total yards, just a lot of missed opportunities. They missed three fumbles, uh, Randy or lost three fumbles. Randy Bullock missed the 45-yard field goal in the second quarter. The offensive line, which is very depleted, took four sacks. They had seven penalties, six for 15 on third down. Just uh, a lot of missed opportunities that I felt like allowed them to stay short. You know, a couple of those things go their way, and they're beating the Seahawks in week one, and we're singing a very different tune uh, about this Bengals team. I mean, I know I came into the year with very low expectations, as did a lot of analysts uh, across the league, but, you know, Taylor's a new head coach. There's a new start for the organization, and uh, good coaches can take a bad organization and, you know, make it into a competitive team. Even if the the Bengals don't necessarily stay competitive throughout the season, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're going to at least make it close with a couple of contenders, as we saw uh, with the Seahawks. So moving forward, I'm buying into this offensive scheme uh, that we're seeing. He's working with a very uh, terrible personnel group, uh, Hmm. if you ask me. I mean, Andy Dalton is not an otherworldly quarterback. We saw that with the fumbles. Um, He certainly isn't somebody who is known to be uh, airing it out like he was uh, with John Ross uh, being the, the biggest guy from that Speaking of which, John Ross, his breakout. Yes. Uh, you're telling me that's not involved with Zach Taylor? Then you're, you're kidding. But uh, you know, I think it's, they just need to clean up their play a little bit. You know, work on that turnover ratio. Uh, hopefully, Bullock, you know, can make those kicks uh, more often. Uh, you get uh, you get Dalton getting the ball out of his hands more often to avoid the sacks. You know, limit the penalties. Better on third down. You know, they can clean those things up. I think this can be a very dangerous offense. Yeah, you you nailed it right on the head, and we're not going to be done talking about this game uh, just yet after this topic alone. But but yeah, it was a terrific debut for Zach Taylor. Of course, he wants to get out there and make an early impression because you know there were such low expectations for him. Uh, the only thing that I you know I give him a little credit for is I mean look at where he just was the couple years before he was with the Los Angeles Rams who get to play the Seattle Seahawks twice a year and and the Rams have had success against Seattle over the last two seasons so definitely took a lot of look 
at the Seattle defense, had a lot of experience with them. I'm sure had a lot of communication in that staff of how you can, you know, tinker and, and break apart that that defense. Um, it was a it was a great debut for Zach Taylor. Um, of course, the defense did its part as well. Uh, you know, holding Seattle uh, to 21 points. Um, you know, a very good showing for Cincinnati. I agree with you. It's not going to be their season, but it's a strong sign moving forward that if they get the right personnel around them, you know, getting that new quarterback, reshoring the offensive line, getting AJ Green back healthy, um, the the Cincinnati future looks looks bright uh, after its its opening week. Hey. Three of the four AFC North teams lost, and I'll tell you what, the Bengals look the best of the losers, oh, yeah. uh, without question, uh, with the Browns and the Steelers' struggles. Uh, so, you know, if we were wrong about the Browns and the Steelers, or, or at least one of those teams, and, and they fall off, there's an opportunity there for the Bengals to pick up a couple extra wins than we were expecting. So, uh, I have high expectations for Zach Taylor. Don't think he's got enough credit for uh, what he did in Week 1. It's just on him now to continue that success. Now, moving on, sell, sell, sell. Uh, one player that you think uh, you see trending down that you want no part of, Blake, is it a player, is it a coach, or is it a team? Uh, it's it's kind of a coach, but it's more so a, a handful of coaches, and it all stems to a collective st- uh, scheme. So I'm branching out a little bit already in our, okay, first, okay. in our first time with it. But I'm going with the Pete Carroll coaching tree uh, slash the cover three scheme. Um, innovative offensive coordinators, and we've seen this kind of starting from the middle of last year to the end of last year. We actually saw a little bit of it in 2017 as well, now that I'm thinking about it. Innovative offensive coordinators have had the blueprint on how to pick apart this defense, and it, it hasn't changed. The scheme itself relies on running cover three roughly 90% of the time, which means the defensive coordinators, they really need to spice things up to disguise their coverages to keep their offense uh, to keep the opposing offenses kind of second-guessing. I mean, when you know what the defense is going to look like 90% of the times, it's so much easier to pick that apart. And there are three teams that got destroyed on week one on, on the defensive side. The first is Seattle. Allowing over 400 yards to Andy Dalton without A.J. Green, I know we said it was a great showing, but for Seattle to allow that to an Andy Dalton-led offense without the number one wide receiver is, is just, I don't even want to get into that. The Jacksonville Jaguars. The Chiefs do have weapons. Second best quarterback in this league. Uh, you know, last year's MVP. But it was an it, it was effortless what they were able to do uh, against Jacksonville, and that shouldn't be the case when Jacksonville has studs upon studs on that defensive side. And then the Atlanta Falcons are the third team. Dan Quinn is calling the shots. He's running the defense. He was up there with Pete Carroll, and he needs to spice things up because it can go very south for Atlanta early on. There's too much talent on this defense to get mauled by Minnesota like they did, especially with Philadelphia's offense hanging around the corner for next week on Sunday night. Uh, Overall, this scheme itself was so dominant in its heyday. We think about the Legion of Boom and how stout you know that Seattle defense was. We think about Jacksonville and how great they were uh, two, three years ago on the defensive side of the ball. They need to develop. They need to react. And when offensive game plans are figuring out how to pick this apart, it's not just a week one thing. It is a year-long thing. And if they don't you know, disguise their coverages a little bit, it's going to be a bad sign for those three teams and anyone that's relying on that cover three heavy uh, defense. 
Yeah, honestly, I think the team that surprised me the most was the Falcons of that group. I mean, oh. you know, Zach Taylor in the new Cincinnati offense, we weren't really sure what to expect. And, and obviously Seattle's defense looks very different, especially the secondary, uh, from what it did a few years ago. So it's kind of in a reset mode uh, in that where we're kind of having to yeah. change our expectations. The Jaguars, I did really like uh, what they have, you know, in that personnel group. And I think they're still going to be a very good defense, but they're facing the Chiefs. You know, right. I kind of give them a pass for, for struggling, but against the the Vikings who had a very underwhelming offense uh, last season and and it's not like Kirk Cousins was otherworldly in fact he was he f- really he just throwing threw, short passes he threw 10 passes all game yeah I mean, you know, Dalvin Cook just shredded, uh, you know, they, they spread out anyway. They didn't have a whole lot of guys in the box, uh, which was interesting. Uh, it would seem like they, even after it seemed like the Vikings had abandoned the, the game plan to use Kirk Cousins, the, the defense was still adjusted as if he was going to air it out a lot, and that left a lot of room for Dalvin Cook to, to do a ton of damage, which he did uh, to his credit. He's an outstanding running back. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I was really surprised about the schematics that they had. Yeah. Um, and moving forward, I'm just kind of expecting a little bit more adjustment on that defensive side. Yeah, I mean, could you imagine an offense bringing out the same formation 90% of the time? You can't be here with how in the weeds we've gotten with with game plans and scheming against opponents and running the same formation, the same base concept 90% of the time. The same thing happened with the you know, with the rise and fall of Tampa 2 in the early mid 2000s and how that became easily exposed. It's the same thing that's happening here. It had a lot of success 5 years ago. Offenses have adjusted to that and now it's time for the defense to react to find what the new structure to, you know, complicate these offenses is going to be. All right, well, for my sell, 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 I'm going back over to that New England-Pittsburgh game uh, that we've been talking about. I'm, I'm talking about Dante Moncrief, uh-huh. uh, who had probably the most disappointing game uh, of anybody in the, the Steelers' offense. I mean, nobody did well. I mean, Juju Smith-Schuster led the receiving core six receptions for 78 yards. His longest catch of the day was for 26. It's not exactly a great showing for your number one receiver, and certainly people are questioning now whether or not he can be that number one. I get the New England secondary uh, is very good, and um, you know, Juju obviously was given the most attention, but it seemed like an opportunity for Moncrief to kind of break out. Uh, and to the, the Steelers' credit, they did try. They gave him 10 targets Roethlisberger threw to him 10 times, but he caught only three passes for seven yards. Uh, a very disappointing game, to say the least, uh, in, in a group where he's surrounded by a lot of talent in the wide receiving core and a lot of talent that's trying to make uh, up for lost time. Where we're, we obviously have Antonio Brown out of that offense now, that's a lot of targets that are up for grabs. And if Moncrief is going to spoil 10 targets uh, like he did on on. Sunday night, uh, I don't see Roethlisberger having a lot of patience and and continuing to throw to him. I can definitely see him uh, trying to lean on some other guys. James Washington made a big catch uh, late in the game that kept the drive alive, um, a 45-yard pass. He only had two catches on the day, but at the same time, you know, he makes that big play and in late in the game that certainly sticks in Roethlisberger's mind much more than any of the plays that Moncrief made. So uh, moving forward, I'm I'm keeping my eye on him and seeing if if they continue to target him like they did. Um, But he just, you know, his catch rate in his career never been very high. Uh, yeah, pretty sure no. it's it's in the 50, 57% career catch rate. I just don't think that's going to get it done uh, in this Pittsburgh offense. Yeah, that's what I was just about to say is that, you know, he had some flashes in Indianapolis. He has a lot of traits that you like as a wide receiver. Big hands, mm-hmm. huge stature. He has a great vertical, so he's able to get up for those 50-50 balls. But... The hands aren't, despite being big, they aren't good. They aren't reliable. He had his drops 
all throughout his previous destinations, Indianapolis, Jacksonville, there's a reason both of those teams are letting them go. It's not like either are necessarily stacked at receiving core. I know Jacksonville now has some younger guys that certainly impressed in week one, but you know, those two teams moved on from Moncrief because he's just not reliable. And Big Ben is stubborn as hell when it comes to trusting his wide receivers. So, you know, unfortunately, I don't think Moncrief is going to be that number two. If you made me, you know, figure it out, and I don't know why they waited until the fourth quarter to get things going, but I think Vance McDonald is the number two receiving option uh, for Ben Roethlisberger. Um, they didn't utilize him in the first three quarters. Uh, James Washington has more upside to me than Moncrief, but I totally agree. It, it was a bad showing, and it's kind of something that has become his big problem in the NFL is he, he just can't be relied on uh, by by his quarterbacks. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're at the point. He's in his sixth season in the NFL, yeah, and it, it seems like he's just getting a lot of chances. Uh, and, and not to say that, you know, he, he isn't a, maybe a great guy and works well in practice, and certainly uh, coming into the season, Pittsburgh seemed pretty high on him. Even though James Washington had a better training camp, Moncrief was, was seen as the number two guy, at least on the death chart, uh, coming into the season. And he was treated as such, got those 10 targets, but in fact, which was more than Juju uh, in the game. Juju only had eight. Um, but I, I can totally see... Roethlisberger getting away from him moving forward, so uh, he's now going to have fewer opportunities to to make his case as a, a mainstay on this roster. And you know, I just don't see him getting it done. But moving on, though, who are you going to short the stock now? This is somebody who uh, seems to be doing well. The national perception might be that things are going well, but you're not a huge fan, Blake. Where are you at? Yeah, this is where we get into my vent of the week, and that's with the Houston Texans. Now, listen, <laughs> they they were very close, almost beat the New Orleans Saints, a very well-respected team. I have them in the playoffs. You have them in the Super Bowl. But I, I, I don't think that they're a good team because they almost beat the Saints. To me, DeAndre Hopkins and Deshaun Watson almost beat the Saints. But then Bill O'Brien <laughs> ended up beating the Texans. And I'm going to break this down into three, uh, or I guess two different things and a third at the end. Um, the play calling was so arrogant and naive in this game last night, and we've seen it so many times before with Bill O'Brien that I'm starting to question how he stayed so long. I guess there isn't a GM to fire him, so maybe that's why. But first thing <laughs> we're going to take a look at is the usage of, an, of one of his running backs immediately after that running back had an explosive run. So, you know, 10 or more yards and him immediately using that running back again. Last year, when the Texans used the same running back after an explosive run... So say it was, you know, first and 10, 12-yard run for Lamar Miller. Then they rush him on that next first and 10. They averaged 2.6 yards per carry with a 24% success rate. When they switched it up and brought in a new running back, they averaged 6.2 yards per carry with a 50% success rate. That would make you think, oh, let's switch up the running backs. But no, despite all that evidence... Bill O'Brien kept the original back in just under 60% of the time. So just wasting plays away after the offense has momentum. This happened to Carlos Hyde four times on Monday night, especially one that I can remember. He had a 20-yard burst, followed up running him again, and it was a one-yard game that set up a second and nine, then a third and eight. Uh, so, you know, it's just waste. It, he, he's killing his own offense's momentum by not realizing how to keep his players fresh and to bring fresh players in to keep the ball rolling on successful drives. Uh, the other thing I'm going to stick to is making the quarterback too much. I talked about he got in that third and eight situation. Watson was faced with a third and eight or more 11 times on Monday, and Brees had that only four times. This is what kind of makes me mad about quarterback evaluation. We analyze quarterbacks as independent objects, but their ceiling is directly coordinated to the play caller, and that was something that I also saw... Uh, you know, just people are, people are giving 
too much credit to quarterbacks that have great situations uh, as opposed to quarterbacks not in great situations. Watson is not in a great situation with Bill O'Brien and still balled out on Monday Night Football. Um, and then the last thing I don't even want – don't get me started, Matt, on the Texans <laughs> playing prevent defense on that final play when it yeah. was so blatantly obvious that the Saints were just going to do a short pass to get in field goal range. Will Lutz is one of the best – Kickers, why are they going to try for a play that rarely succeeds when they know if they just get 10 more yards, they're going to be in well enough range for Will Lutz to win that game? I think that this was a horrible uh, game plan execution by Bill O'Brien. It's stuff that's stemming from seasons before, and it's making me so mad that he doesn't have a GM that can fire him right now. Yeah, well, you know, they're all in on Bill O'Brien, and, and oh. given his offensive background, it's the moves that they've made uh, just in the past few weeks have, you know, slanted toward the offense. You know, Jadavian Clowney, they're unwilling to pay him. He's gone. They bring in uh, Laramie Tunsil and uh, Kenny Stills in a big trade. They, they acquire uh, Duke Johnson prior to Lamar Miller's injury, so they were going to be going with two pre- like, I wouldn't say premier backs, but above average backs, one particularly between the tackles and one particularly in the passing game. They obviously substitute uh, Miller with Carlos Hyde, who does pretty well in the game uh, numbers-wise. But, you know, they're they're really invested in this offense, and they're expecting Bill O'Brien to take it to the next level, uh, and he just really hasn't been able to do that. Yes, they were able to keep things competitive. It was an insane drive at the end of the game um, that was able to to give the Texans yeah. a late lead. Uh, you know, and a really good play play call. I like the the, the Kenny Stills crossing over the middle. Uh, the matchup with Marcus Williams. It's exactly what you want on a deep pass. But you know, at the same time, it, it, it he just hasn't been able to get it done so far. Obviously, with this game uh, falling short, uh, you, you got to say that's the fault of the defense at the end of the game there. But um, you know, the the offense stalled middle of the game, got off to a hot start, and then allowed. Uh, uh, New Orleans to claw its way back. The, the running game wasn't allowed to control the clock and keep the ball in the possession of the offense. And, you know, I, I think a lot of that goes to, to Bill O'Brien's play calling. Yeah, and there's only so much that, you know, Deshaun Watson, DeAndre Hopkins, and his receivers can do when, when their plays are being set up to not be that open. You know, DeAndre Hopkins had an unbelievable game and still had a, the more, I guess he had three times as many drops last, on Monday night as he did all of last season. So he was very competitively guarded uh, by Marshawn Lattimore. That was an amazing matchup to watch throughout the entire night. But DeAndre Hopkins still balled out. Deshaun Watson still balled out. And I think with even just a little bit better of a game plan. And like we say, you know, mixing things up where you're not exhausting your running backs after they have a productive run. I think that this game probably, I mean, I know it's, it's, you know, frustrating to say, but I do think that the Texans would have walked out of Monday night with a win if you just eliminate two of the three of those things. One, the prevent defense. Uh, two, the using the running backs right after, immediately after an explosive run. And then also the third and eight or more situations that Deshaun Watson was put into 11 or more times. Yeah, well, it, it's certainly going to be an oh, interesting season for I'm the so Texans. Mad. AFC South is wide open. Uh, obviously, the Saints are a very good team. They kept it competitive, which shows that you know the ceiling is still up there for the Texans. Dude, There's certainly I, a lot of season left to be played, but uh, definitely a disappointing loss for them. I'm so mad about them. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm so mad. I think the Texans are in for a, a bad season. Ooh, that's a hot take right there. We'll see what happens, Blake. But I'm going to short another close game uh, that we saw. In fact, it had the closest finish of any game uh, in the NFL this weekend. It was the 
Lions and the Cardinals, uh, who ended up tying. And uh, what was an exciting game until it tied. I'm against all ties. I hate it, but, you know, whatever. That's just... It, Whatever. We'll leave it at that. But the the stock I'm shorting is Cliff Kingsbury. Mm-hmm. Uh, never mind the fact that they entered the fourth quarter with six points and 100 yards uh, of total offense. You know, obviously that, that stands out as a pretty glaring figure. Throw that away. They had a great fourth quarter. They obviously changed up the game plan and things worked. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that, Cliff. Uh, but my, my big thing is he had the, the biggest uh, call of his night. Uh, was his decision to punt on 4th and 7 with a minute 10 left to go on the Detroit 46 uh, in overtime after uh, the Lions had already tied things up. There's a minute 10 left in the game. You have uh, the ball on the Detroit side of the field. 4th and 7, not insurmountable, not an easy uh, play for sure, but by punting the ball on that play, Cliff basically decided that we're just going to go for the tie here. Uh, and, you know, he was hired to be an innovative, risky head coach, for you know, to be frank about it. And the fact that he was, you know, obviously it's his first game and he doesn't want to go off on a loss, but who wants to start their career in a tie, man? You know, at the end of the day, it would be a ballsy decision for sure. Uh, and he'd have to talk about it in the post-game press conference and all that. But, you know, that's the kind of plays that separate the winners from the losers. you, you got to be able to know when to take a risk. And I thought that was a bad time to go conservative. Uh, especially considering, you know, they, they do pin the ball uh, deep uh, in Detroit territory. The Lions ultimately aren't able to get any traction. Uh, they, they don't score, and yes, the game ends in a tie, but, you know, you, you could have won the game. Kyler Murray was, was was playing out of his mind there in the fourth quarter, and, you know, there was a, a definitely a bad call that, that didn't go their way uh, with what should have been a uh, roughing the passer uh, late there, and, and certainly that hurts them. But, you know, it's it's fourth down, you're in their territory, go for it. That it's With a minute left, there's just really no excuse for that. Yeah, you know, I, I more so, and we think about the game uh, this past year where the uh, Colts and Texans, the Texans ended up winning in overtime because the Colts ran conservative at the end of that game. And, and it's a similar situation. Now, in terms of Cliff Kingsbury... You know, there's so much that you can overthink in your first game as an NFL head coach and and to consider that he had actually really never spent much time uh, in the NFL at all. You you would um, you would hate to, to, you know, I'm trying to think the best way to phrase it. I don't want to defend him for that because I also would rather I would much rather blame him for whatever kind of shit we saw in the first three quarters. But, um, you know, I. I just think that he must have just got caught up in the in the momentum of I can't lose my first game on top of the three horrid first quarters. I understand the momentum had totally swung to Arizona, um, which is unfortunate that it did end up in a tie. But um, yeah, no, I, I agree. It's I, I'm I'm shorting uh, the stock on on Cliff just essentially from what we saw in the first three quarters, and I think we even spoke about it. I want to say last week, or maybe we just had a conversation over the phone about it. But um, it's going to be interesting to monitor what happens in that in in that franchise because I think with with the Cardinals, if things go really really south for Arizona this year, you can't get rid of Cliff in his first year after getting rid of uh, last year's head coach and his name is escaped Vance Joseph or no not Vance Joseph no, what the hell Todd, is his name not Todd Bowles right Jeez. it was. Uh... We are all over the place. Oh man, Cardinals. We we we're just listing all the guys that got fired last year. <laughs> Steve Wilkes. Uh, Steve Wilkes. Thank you. Yes, there we go. So you you get rid of him after one season. You trade Josh Rosen. You if this thing doesn't go well, you can't get rid of Cliff Kingsbury after one year. Um, so I think you know. Hopefully he turns things around, but it definitely wasn't the best showing uh, to begin his professional career. Absolutely not. 
I also want him to, real quick, just get David Johnson involved in the passing game more, man. Yeah. 2016, he had 879 receiving yards on 80 catches in oh. his career. Since he started he uh, in the league in 2015, he has 7.08 yards per target. That is fourth in the league among tailbacks since he entered the NFL. And yet, last year, the last two years, Bruce Arians really didn't get him all that involved. I mean, obviously, he had the injury, missed uh, all but one game. Uh, what was that two years ago? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, last year was kind of a, a measuring stick for that. But he, he only he cut his uh, target share in half, basically. Only had 76 targets, 50 receptions last year, despite playing all 16 games. Uh, you obviously have Josh Rosen. At that point, you know, with Rosen struggling, he should have been checking down a lot more. Yeah. Uh, I would have liked to see, you know, David Johnson rack up the catches. And, and certainly in his first game in Arizona, um, you know, he had six catches for 55 yards. But one of them, he had one pass for 27. So really, uh, he only had five catches for whatever that math is, 28 yards uh, in the rest of the game. So I would have liked to see him uh, get involved in more wheel routes, uh, getting creative uh, with the passing game. All right. Yeah, certainly. But moving on, we're going to go final part of this segment here. The stock you're going to invest in, the player, coach, team, or scheme, apparently, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that, you're, that you are uh, seeing isn't getting enough attention or maybe – appears to be on the downward climb, but you uh, believe they're going to boom. Who is it, Blake? Yeah, this is, I guess, uh, you know, I'm also, I'm, str- I'm really stretching these rules early on. So where I went with this one, I was going to uh, use this segment for the Pittsburgh Steelers, but I've already addressed, I think they're still a very good football team. They just unfortunately face the best team in football, and I think by a, a decently sized margin. So I'm going with someone that I think entered the season with some low stock and some uh, a lot of pressure on him. And, and what we saw in week one was certainly amazing. And that's Kellen Moore, offensive coordinator for the Dallas Cowboys. I'm investing all my stock into this Dallas offense because, yes, it was the Giants. And the Giants aren't known to be a good team as of recent. <laughs> so I don't want to go out and say that, you know, this is, you know, this is kind of like, you know, the Ravens and the Dolphins, what we saw. I don't think it's to that extent. But but what we saw from him in his first game as an offensive coordinator, uh, I thought was was just what Dallas needed. They, they had played so conservative in years past because they knew they had Ezekiel Elliott. They knew they had one of the top five, top three offensive lines. And so they didn't really, you know, get too creative in the passing game. And so what we saw... Uh, in, in week one with that offense was they, they downfield aggressive game plan. Um, you know, teams used to limit this offense by just stacking the box to try and neutralize Zeke, but they won't be able to do that anymore. Cooper, we know, is a number one wide receiver in this league. Michael Gallup, everyone was talking him up this offseason and into the preseason. He showed it. He is a one of the better number two wide receivers. And Randall Cobb's a great three to round it out. I know they lost Cole Beasley, but getting in Cobb right there is is, you know, just a slight downgrade, in my opinion. Uh, and then, you, of course, you've got you know Blake Jarwin, who was really coming in uh, to his own in the second half of last season and really came out uh, strong in this opening week. Um, and Matt, we got to talk about Dak Prescott. I mean, what we saw from him in, the, in this week one was, was just so much confidence. Uh, he was launching the ball into tight windows. He stood comfortable in the pocket throughout the entire game and seemed in rhythm from the opening kickoff. Um, I loved what we saw from Kellen Moore. I think that this has potential to be a, you know, if it goes well and this is just one game, but I'm really investing in what I saw because it was a very well-designed and thought-out game plan. I think Kellen Moore had a great debut. If it continues through the rest of this season, um, there there are going to be names calling for him in the next year or two as a head coach in this league. I get what you're saying because a lot of people have been uh, selling the, 
the the offense short uh, simply because of the team it was playing. Um, basic, I, I heard on the radio yesterday uh, the Giants are um, basically the Dolphins with Saquon. Uh, and <laughs> oh. that that is their that is their roster right now. That's we so saw sad. The Dolphins get absolutely decimated, and it's kind of true. Uh, Saquon is is basically the focal point, not of just that offense, but of that team. Um, and, and certainly, you know, there's a lot of holes in that secondary. Uh, but at the same time, you know, a lot of people talk about how Dak Prescott's ceiling depends on Zeke, that it's all about Zeke, yeah. uh, and that he is, is going to be uh, the driver of that offense, and if Zeke can't establish the run, then we're not going to see anything out of Dak. Well, Dak absolutely took over this game uh, in a way that we really haven't seen him do before. Uh, and, you know, Amari Cooper, especially early, was, was such a threat. Uh, and Zeke, you know, what was it, 55 pat- rushing yards by the end of the game? Yeah, I mean, it's right not there. like he was uh, a world beater by any no. means. I mean, they, they kind of, you know, eased off in the second half, um, getting Tony Pollard in the mix a little bit. But uh, overall, you know, this... I, I really like a lot of the tools on this Cowboys offense, and you know, I, I kind of look at my pick of, of not picking the, making, allowing them to make the playoffs uh, in my preseason mm-hmm. picks. I, I might have to rethink that uh, based on a few of these early returns. Now, oh. I'm not going to change any picks right now, but of course. Uh, I certainly really liked what I saw out of the Cowboys last weekend. Yeah, certainly, and that, the, what that does is it just creates less pressure, less touches, less wear and tear for Zeke as the season goes on, and it gives you kind of the same sense. Of what New England, you know, not to the extreme of what New England can do, but if you're playing a tough front seven, and New York has some really good size in their front seven, that's what they've got. They got thick boys in the trenches. So what that did is that allowed the Dallas Cowboys to step back, get in shotgun more, do a lot of play action passes. Oh, that was the other thing I was forgetting. They were one of two teams. They ran play action. 50% of their plays, dude. And when you have Ezekiel Elliott and you're running half the time play action, you're going to fool so many defenses. Um, so I, I, th- I want to think of who the other team was that did that. It was them, and I want to say it was – was it the Packers? There was one was other the team. Rams? There was one other team out there. It wasn't the Rams, I don't think. There was one other team. Um, if it was the, I think it was the Packers, but maybe not. But 50% of their plays – were play action, and that just sets up for so much confusion. Um, one of the bigger trends heading into this season, and the big guy that I've gone to for all of my numbers and analytics from last season is Warren Sharp. Warren Sharp. If, if you're not Sharpanalytics.com. Dude, if you're not following him, he, he's got this shit down. You know the one drum he was beating this entire season and people were giving him shit for? Lamar Jackson. I know they played a JV football team, but Lamar looked ungodly. Um, and it's funny, we haven't even really talked about him this episode, but... Warren Sharp uh, was talking about how it's it, the success rate of play-action plays is so high, yet it's used so little. Um, and, and we saw the Cowboys go out there, use it on half of their offensive plays. Um, I, I love what Kellen Moore is bringing as opposed to the, their previous bland, conservative offensive coordinators, and I think it makes this, this team dangerous. I'll tell you what – if we're talking about what's trending upward, it's got to be Warren Sharp. He is everywhere oh, this season. Dude. <laughs> I mean, I'm seeing He's him all over the place, uh, Twitter, podcasts, uh, being brought up on broadcasts. Yeah, uh, he Coward was yesterday. had him on the other day. I mean, yeah, he's everywhere, and good for him because he's, he's such a smart dude, um, and a, I'm a big fan of his work. All right, we're, we've been running a little bit over on these yeah, picks. Yeah, sorry. So we'll, we'll be better <laughs> about the, the times next time, but uh, we'll wrap it up here with my investment. Uh, and it's definitely a player that's going to take you by surprise, Blake, Cam Newton. 
Uh, this, coming into this year, nobody was high on him, including me. Uh, and I'm I'm still I'm not saying that he's returning to MVP form, uh, that he's you know going to be uh, among even the top ten quarterbacks in the NFL this season. Um, given his shoulder injury, I think because of of where he's at in his shoulder and the fact that he probably isn't going to be healthy all year, uh, we're probably not going to see vintage Cam at least until next season. That being said, I do think that he's better than the numbers suggest uh, from last game. He finished 25 of 38 for 239 yards, no touchdowns, threw a pick. His Q- QBR was 17.1, uh, pretty bad. Uh. But if, if you look a little bit deeper uh, at the numbers, his time uh, to throw, 2.24 seconds last game. That it was the lowest in the NFL uh, by far of, of, of any player. Um, it, it was pretty sad that, you know, he was given such little time, uh, considering, you know, he already is banged up. Um, a guy who's been banged up for a lot of his career, that offensive line just did no favors for him, uh, to start the game. And his expected completion percentage, 71.8%, which ranked among the top five quarterbacks, mm-hmm. uh, in the NFL. Now, a part of that is an attribute, uh, attributes to the fact that he didn't throw the ball too deep. He only averaged 6.3 average intended air, air yards, uh, in the game, which was among the lower, uh, rankings in the league, but, you know, he has Christian McCaffrey, and that makes a lot of sense that he's going to be, you know, throwing a lot of screens, a lot of dump passes to him, Um, but with only one throw of 20-plus yards last game, I think that's something that we're going to see be a trend this year, uh, in that we're probably not going to see him throw the ball too deep uh, and and put too much wear on that shoulder, maybe a little bit more as the season goes on, if he's able to uh, get a little bit more comfortable with it, you might might see him air it out a little bit more, but we're probably going to see him uh, stay mostly within uh, 20 yards upfield, and I think he can be a very effective quarterback in that range uh given the skill set that he has of the players around him uh you know dj Moore over the middle i like him a lot i like curtis samuel uh in, in mccaffrey obviously being one of the best catching uh running backs in the foot in football i think this offense is going to be very different so really a, a test for this you know car, uh, panthers coaching staff uh to have to adapt to the kind of game that cam newton's going to be bringing this year but uh i think we could see a lot of rpos with him um where you know he has the option of handing it off or throwing the quick passes over the middle um you know something that uh, we haven't really seen out of the Panthers offense too much uh, in the past couple of years. That, that really hasn't been their MO. Uh, but I think that could be uh, implemented a lot more moving forward. And I'm interested to see how Cam Newton is utilized because I think, you know, while his numbers may not be uh, otherworldly, like I mentioned, I do mm-hmm. think that he certainly, within his range, is going to be a very good quarterback this season. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm not going to doubt Cam Newton. And he's one of those classic guys that if he has a bad week, he'll go out and ball out for the next two or three um, mm. to say my only, my only concern with Cam is dude, I don't know if it was just me. And I, I heard, uh, I saw a discussion of it on Twitter. Someone tweeted about it too, but did Cam Newton look smaller to you on the field? <laughs> dude, I I'm serious. He, he looked frail. And I think this off season, he talked about a vegan diet. So I'm not sure if that played a role into it, but he, he legitimately looked smaller. And I think that's, that just takes away um, and, of course, they want to do a better job protecting him this year, given that the injuries that he's had. But making him smaller and going for a little more clean-cut uh, frame I don't think is good when you're a quarterback and you're going to be taking so many hits, especially when you're one of those guys that's still going to go out there and try and be a little bit mobile. Uh, that I, I agree. Cam Newton is definitely one of the better quarterbacks in football and I do believe isn't as bad as what we saw in Week 1. But I am concerned this season to see uh, how it, he just looks smaller to me. His frame, his shoulders looked a little bit smaller. His arms look smaller. Uh, I'm going to be interested to see um, how they try to utilize him in the run game, try and keep him healthy because I feel like 
If you're a quarterback that's dealing with injuries, I don't think the solution is to try and get more lean because then you're just going to get tossed around the same amount and have a higher chance of getting hurt. So so I, I think Cam will definitely bounce back from week one. But long-term seasons, I, I'm kind of worried about his health and, and his impact in the run game that he you know used to be so good at. Well, it doesn't seem like we're really going to be – I mean, obviously it's one week and we're not trying to overreact here, but he only had three carries. Uh, and his longest pickup was three yards. So it's not like he was really doing much right. uh, in the run game. Um, certainly it seems like they're going to be taking a bit of a different approach. I mean – McCaffrey had 128 uh, rushing yards. The entire rest of the team had negative one. Hmm. Um, so the run game is going to go through McCaffrey, uh, and, and that's some, a benefit that the, this offense has is having such a talented running running back, uh, lead bell cow guy who's going to be on the field for basically every snap of the game. Um, you know, Newton is not going to be relied on as much in the running game. He's going to be able to give it to McCaffrey. And I, like I said, that RPO is really intriguing to me uh, in how they utilize it. So moving forward, uh, I, yeah, like you said, there's, there's certainly a lot of concerns about him. Uh, it did look like he lost a little bit of weight, um, but I don't think he's going to be me putting his body uh, in the positions to get hit like he does it has in years past. Um, so it's just going to be a different version of Cam Newton that we're not used to, and I'm very intrigued to see how he progresses with that version throughout the year because my bet's on him getting better once he gets more comfortable in that kind of system. Mm-hmm. All right, well, that's going to put a wrap on our yeah. football topics hey. <laughs> 43 minutes into the yeah, show. Yeah, next, <laughs> next time we do this, we should actually – we talked about setting a shot clock. I think we actually need to time each other to make these yeah. more concise. And also, one last thing. I know we're still talking NFL – you said we're trying not to overreact. I totally overreacted on all four of my things, and I can't. <laughs> I can't wait to watch the Patriots actually go like ten and six, eleven and five. Amazing! I would be thrilled. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's the one where you might not be overreacting, Blake. To be oh, honest. Oh, geez. So the other ones I did. <laughs> the other three, we'll see. We'll oh, see. Okay, all right. Well, that's you. gonna that, that's gonna be it for football. We have had. So much football content the past couple of weeks uh, in the show. I'm sure a lot of our baseball listeners are tired of this, uh, saying get over it already. The football season started. We're excited. We're sorry about it, but we're not really sorry about it because uh, I can't tell you how much fun I had on Sunday. Uh, Flipping through Red Zone, had three screens up. I know Blake was doing the same thing. We were texting throughout the day. Uh, It was a lot of fun uh, just getting back in the swing of things man the, it was a, a lot of good storylines in week one and i'm sure the season's going to bring a ton more uh hopefully we can you know limit the injuries on the big name players but uh we'll see how the season shakes out and whether or not the patriots really are just a, an unbeatable team that nobody's going to be able to stop so um as long as that doesn't happen i'll be happy but we'll see all right go, go moving on to, fo- to baseball though we've got two topics for you guys uh we wanted to hit on we won't spend uh, as much time as we did on the football topics yeah. <laughs> uh, as we will with this, so we'll try and, and, and touch base here. But we're going to focus on the two teams from the World Series last year. Actually, Blake pointed out that fact to me. Put together these topics without even realizing it. Um, but the two teams I want to talk about are the Red Sox and the Dodgers. We're going to start with the Red Sox, uh, who made the very surprising move over the weekend to fire Dave Dombrowski, their president of baseball operations, Literally less than a year. What is it now? Ten months? I guess. I guess nine months since uh, the World Series ended in November. Nine and a half months since the Red Sox won the World Series. Dave Dombrowski is out. It's definitely a puzzling move, uh, to say the least. Blake, where do you stand on this? Do you think it's it's a good move? I mean, obviously, they have really uh, underperformed this season. The pitching staff has had a lot of question marks. The bullpen has been up and down. The offense, outside of a few stars, has been very inconsistent. 
Where are you on the Dave Dombrowski firing? You know, I'm I'm just confused because I, I get there are bad moves that had been made, and I can go into that a little bit later. But I mean, to think that you know, just one bad season, and it's not a a really bad season. It's not like they're the Tigers or the Marlins or the Orioles. They're you know, I, I believe. Uh, what is it now? 17 and a half games out of the division lead. The Yankees have the best record in baseball. Yes, they're behind the Tampa Bay Rays, who are also having a very good season, uh, and they're not going to make the postseason. So, you know, it's one season that they're outside of the playoffs, but they've won division titles. They won a World Series. Um, and I think what it just more so is making me think about is the direction and maybe the disagreement on the direction of this team. I mean, you know, we saw, we've seen a lot of stuff about how it'd be difficult for the Red Sox and nearly impossible for the Red Sox to keep both Mookie Betts and J.D. Martinez. Now, to me, this is just a weird thing because I think of Mookie Betts as, as you know, one of the brighter stars in this game. He didn't start out great in the season, but has really picked up and, and, and been playing hot baseball over the last few months. But to me, it, it seems like um, they were kind of in the notion that they might be looking into moving on for Mookie Betts and maybe looking for a trade next season, things like that. I, I saw some rumors pop up, uh, you know, some stuff that I had been reading and listening to from Ken Rosenthal. But, um, you know, so to me, if the, the only thing that I could think of is there is disconnect between ownership and him and, and where one side wanted the idea of pushing away Mookie Betts. And to me, the ownership probably looked at Betts as, as the face of this team and, you know, moving away from him after this next season probably was something and hearing those rumors and maybe having those discussions internally caused some of the discourse because it didn't feel, it didn't seem like there was a lot of trust between both parties. Um, but, but yeah, it, it's just confusing. And, and, you know, we talk about some of the bad deals that they've made. And, you know, uh, one of the worst ones, as it turns out, is, you know, is Steve Pierce re-signing him uh, this offseason. Uh, they brought him back at six point. Two five million, uh, and you know after winning World Series MVP, you know just a, a month before uh, this year, uh, he'd been limited twenty nine games, hit one eighty with one home run. Uh, they've had guys like Michael Chavis and Sam Travis really step up, uh, you know, to cover for those guys. And and you think about where that money could have gone six six and a six and a half or over six million could have gone to depth in the in the pitching rotation. Uh, you think about some of the other moves that they've made, uh, you know, trading for Andrew Kashner, that didn't really work a ton. Um, you know, getting rid of Eduardo Nunez, uh, re-signing Nathan Eovaldi to a four-year $68 million deal, uh, and, and they were essentially going to try and bring him in as the closer, but then that didn't work out after he was finally healthy, and so they've just been trying to figure out what his role with the Red Sox is going to be. Of course, Chris Sale is being paid a boatload of money, um, and, and you know, they, I feel like they've just invested money in the wrong places and didn't really spread it out enough to now where, you know, their two best players, J.D. Martinez and Mookie Betts, uh, we don't know what the future of them is going to be, uh, you know, beyond next season. Yeah, and, you know, for me, I feel like you have to look at Dombrowski's resume. Um, you know, going back to when he first became an executive, uh, back with the Expos, eventually going over to the Marlins, he's since brought four teams to the World Series. Uh, one was in 1997 with the Florida Marlins. Subsequently afterward, uh, he was forced to uh, have a fire sale uh, from the um, 
owner, Wayne, uh, I can never say it right, Huzenga, uh, John Henry, uh, were the owners of the Marlins at the time. They were known for being shrewd. And after winning the World Series, literally the next season, there was a massive fire sale in Miami, uh, which is a trend uh, with the Marlins uh, over the past uh, I guess now it's two and a half decades. Um, you know, they, they'll have some good teams and then they'll sell off. But, you know, he participated in that. Certainly wasn't his plan. Um, but after he uh, sold off all those players, the Marlins failed to get uh, above 500 for the rest of his tenure before in 2001 he went over to the Tigers. Now, with the Tigers, he did reach mm-hmm. two World Series. Uh, did not win either of them. He made it in 2006 and he made it in 2012. Uh, but the teams, you know, in between weren't necessarily world beaters. Um, you know, it was kind of a struggle for him uh, to get back to the playoffs uh, for a while. It was, you know, uh, after the 2006 World Series, they had, made, had four straight seasons uh, without making it to the postseason. They finally get back in 2011 and have four straight years of doing it. Um, but in 2015, he was fired uh, from the Tigers, and, you know, that organization was kind of left in shambles. You know, in that 2015 season, they go 74 and 87, uh, which was their big fall off after winning 90, 90 games the year before. And since then, uh, they've had one 500 season, uh, but other than that, have really just been, you know, had the look of a rebuilding club. And it, it's kind of uh, the, the narrative around Dombrowski is that he w- might get you to the World Series, but he's going to leave your team in shambles afterward yeah. uh, with, you know, a lot of veterans, uh, a lot of expiring contracts. You know, they, they, they had guys like Max Scherzer, who they had to let go. They end up uh, re-signing um, Miguel Cabrera to that massive contract uh, that they're still paying off right now. They have, they're forced to let J.D. Martinez go as a result. Um, they're forced to let Rick Porcello go as a result. Um, you know, a, a lot of guys that were key to that team, Ian Kinsler, all, all weren't able to be retained because of some of the big contracts that they were wrapped up in. So, yeah. um, you know, overall, I think what we could be seeing with this Red Sox front office uh, is is not liking the results after this World Series and saying, you know, not necessarily uh, all in on the future. I mean, you know, you've got Mookie Betts' contract coming up. I'm not sure who, who stood where on what um, in terms of getting that deal done, if, if the ownership was willing to, to sign him to a, a massive contract. It certainly seems like he's destined for free agency uh, from what we've heard uh, in terms of reports. But, you know, overall, I could see uh, some disagreement going on in that front office. Obviously, purely speculation on my part, but, right. you know, given, given his resume uh he just doesn't do well after finding that success there's a lot of times where uh you know the teams are pretty bad that he's uh put together uh post that that all-in season so um you know this is obviously not what the red sox were hoping for they like you said they brought back a lot of guys from that team that did win the world series hoping for repeat Mm -hmm. uh performances of what we saw and you know some of it just didn't pan out and uh perhaps you know moving forward the, the red sox uh, ownership group just really wasn't happy with the direction of the team. Yeah, and, and don't get me wrong, as a Yankees fan, I'm not going to complain if they're to fall <laughs> off like some of those teams you mentioned. Um, but it's it's exactly what you said. What he did, uh, you know, in Boston, you know, he trades for Craig Kimbrell, he trades for Steve Pierce at the time, and, and you know how that worked out with him winning, uh, you know, earning MVP. Traded for Nathan Eovaldi, traded for Chris Sale. Um, you know, he he really worked the, the trade markets, Eduardo Nunez as well. Um, and then, and then you know, you just run into a place where you've traded for so many assets, and now they're all performing well. They make a World Series, and now they all need to be paid respectfully, and they're just not in a situation to get that done. And so, 
Uh, unfortunately, now Boston is left in a situation, like you said, with all those teams where, you know, you got them to the World Series. They won a championship. They were competitive for several years. And now it, it looks like a clusterfuck. And who knows who they're able to keep beyond next year. Um, fortunately, there are some young stars. You know, Chavis had a, you know, it was an up and down season, but an impressive rookie season. Uh, Rafael Devers has become one of the better third basemen uh, in, in baseball. Uh, I don't know if that's too far of a stretch, man. I'm not sure how weird that is is that a stretch i don't know i mean he's certainly having the season uh to, to, so you're so, yeah it. i mean okay. we're so we're, he's having the 2019 the year. alone okay we need to see it alone. more yes of course um you know that's like the we've had this debate with football right. um, yeah so i'm not, <laughs> won't dive too much into that but i think nolan arenado and anthony rendon yeah uh, and and matt chapman to an extent uh, oh yeah yeah, yeah. My top three yeah um, I, because they've been doing it a little bit longer right of course i wouldn't catapult him into the to the best of the best but i would say he's definitely one of the especially given his age one of the better up-and-comers at that position and so you know they do have some pieces here and there and of course of course, if Chris Sale is is able to you know be healthy uh, you know for the you know the remainder of his contract, he's one of the best pitchers in baseball. It's it's going to be interesting to watch. But it, it I was so shocked when it happened, um, I, I couldn't believe it. But now taking a look at, at his previous um, you know track record, and Matt, thank you so much for bringing that up and showing me that. It just makes a lot more sense how he's a guy that can get things done for a couple years, but beyond that. Uh, you don't really want him around to kind of fix your salary cap. The Red Sox farm system is also insanely depleted. Depleted, fact, yeah. Probably the worst in baseball. They only have one prospect uh, on the MLB Pipeline Top 100. That's uh, I'm probably going to butcher this name, but Tristan Cassis, um, who's ranked 86, so a fringe uh, top 100 prospect at that. Not necessarily anybody that's really going to stand out on any lists right now. So, you know, with, with no end in sight and a lot of the pieces that you mentioned, uh, they acquired requiring prices uh, of prospects. It's no surprise that they stood pat at the deadline um, and, you know, weren't able to add anybody uh, because, you know, the Red Sox were one of those teams that was on the fringe of the wildcard race entering the deadline. Uh, certainly not in the, they had a little bit of ground to gain, um, but, you know, a move here, a move there could have really made the difference, and they just didn't have the, the resources to make those kind of moves. I mean, the Red Sox were one of two teams last year to exceed the luxury tax. They look in line to do so again this year, uh, so they've already busted the bank in terms of you know adding lots of players with high salaries. Um, you know, you've already extended Chris Sale to, an, uh, to a long-term extension, yeah. and now he's uh, having some uh, injury problems. He's out for the year. Uh, you're, you're a little bit worried about that. There's just there's a lot of things that, that didn't go right this year for the Red Sox, but not just this year. It's a lot of things that uh, will have ramifications moving forward, and it's tough for a contending team to remain competitive when it's not getting any kind of reinforcements from his farm system. So, yeah, it was definitely a surprising move to see him fired midseason. Uh, maybe yeah. at the end of the year it would have made sense uh, a little bit more. Um, but, you know, they, the way that the Red Sox see it probably right now is that they're out of it. Uh, and that, you know, there was no point in waiting, just get him out of there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but given his resume, I'm not surprised that Dombrowski uh, was cut loose uh, from the Red Sox. He's certainly going to land somewhere. Um, you know, a few teams that uh, might be bringing in new GMs next year uh, could be considering him. Uh, but as far as the Red Sox go, it, it doesn't necessarily surprise me that they did fire Dombrowski. Yeah, and just one last thing. It was great that uh, that this happened all while the, the Yankees eliminated them from the postseason and as well took three of four in a four-game series. So 
that, that just made it all prettier for me. But yeah, it is it is going to be uh, kind of a shit show for whoever takes over Boston next. It'll be interesting to see where Dombrowski goes uh, beyond this year. Um, so I guess two, two things to monitor as we head into the end of baseball season and certainly some things we will have to talk about uh, between you know then and next baseball season. Absolutely. Now let's go over to the National League for the other uh, representative in the World Series from last season, and that would be the Los Angeles Dodgers, team that's been in the World Series each of the last two years. Um, and we have two players that we're a little bit concerned about uh, moving forward as far as the postseason goes, and those are two guys that um, one ha- has been a stud for most of the year and another who's been a stud for most of his career. Hyunjin Ryu and Kenley Jansen both have a lot of question marks heading into this final stretch run. Uh, might be a little bit concerned about how they're used in the playoffs. Hyunjin Ryu was a Cy Young candidate for most of the season, but lately has really struggled. Since August 17th, he's made four starts, and over that span, he has a 9.95 ERA. 21 run runs allowed in just 19 innings, only has 21 strikeouts, not really a prolific strikeout guy, uh, but seven walks over that span, five home runs allowed, uh, two starts in which he allowed seven runs, one against the Yankees and one against the Diamondbacks. Um, so certainly, you know, and that rose his ERA. He had a one four five ERA uh, entering play on August 17th yeah. since... Uh, it's now at a two four five, a full run higher uh, than it was at that point. But in the bullpen, we also have Kenley Jansen, who's been less than stellar in the closing role this year, uh, has blown a number of saves, including three uh, in the month of August to just two saves in that entire span. Um, you know, since, uh, let's see, going back to uh, the start of July, his ERA is sitting at 4.95. I mean, that's two and a half months worth of play at this point. Uh, and we're really not seeing him be that anchor that the Dodgers really need in the back of their bullpen, especially considering they didn't acquire any relievers at the deadline or at least any impact relievers off the top of my head. They might have gotten somebody. Uh, can't remember uh, if they did get a reliever at all, but I know they didn't get anybody who's going to challenge Jansen uh, for any outs in the ninth inning or, or any high leverage spots for that matter in the play- playoffs. We've seen Dave Roberts get creative with his use of Jansen and you know give him maybe two innings um, if you know he he thinks that the lineup poses or the heart of the lineup is up in the eighth inning. Uh, we've seen him go to get Jansen in those spots before, um, but you know he, he's just looking a lot more hittable. So uh, Blake, I'm going to go ahead and just answer this question myself and you yeah. can come, kind of come <laughs> off of it. Um, but you know as far as who we should be more worried about, uh, I'm going to have to go with Jansen. You know Ryu. Obviously, is struggling right now, and, and they're, they're taking a, a, an adapted approach where he's going to be on a bit more of a pitch count. They're going to try not to, to stress him too much. Um, you know, he's a guy who's dealt with injuries most of his career. Uh, certainly, they don't want to push him uh, after last season, only making 15 starts. You know, he had did, did have 24 the season before that, but then 2016 only appeared in one game, missed the entire 2015 season. So certainly, uh, a lot of question marks health wise about him, and you do not want to push him to the point where he gets hurt. Uh, because then you lose him entirely. We could see them you know, ease back so that he's a little bit more fresh for the playoffs. Might not start game one of an NLDS at this point. I don't know. That's going to be a tough decision for Dave Roberts to make. Um, but you know, if he continues to struggle, we might not see that. Certainly, we'll get some postseason starts, but we'll see. But with Jansen, you just can't hide him. I mean... Mm-hmm. This bullpen has been inconsistent this year. It's definitely the weakness uh, of this Dodgers team. Um, but you're going to be leaning on Kenley Jansen in the tightest spots late in games. Uh, and with how bad bullpens have been all um, 
you know, this year, it's certainly not necessarily a strength for any of the other NL contenders uh, who are going to be, you know, facing them, whether that be the Nats in the first round, whether that be the Dodgers, whether that be the Cubs. Uh, you know, none of these teams have really stood out in terms of their bullpen this year. So certainly there's going to be uh, opportunities on both sides for some late scoring. But, you know, the, that could be if the Dodgers had their bullpen figured out, that would be one area they would really be able to dominate other teams. Uh, and I'm just not sure that we're going to be able to see, you know, Kenley Jansen do that uh, in big spots. And that's that's going to be a, a big what if. It is hard to make the World Series three straight seasons. Yeah. You know, we, it's not definitely not something we've seen. Uh, I believe it was since the Yankees. Uh, 99 to 2001, uh, if I'm not mistaken. That's the last time we had a team make it three straight years to the World Series. So I was in diapers uh, we, then. <laughs> you and me both. And, you know, I think that's two decades worth before we've seen something like that happen. So uh, it might be another two decades before we see it again. And uh, if, if anything is going to plague the Dodgers this, this postseason, it's going to be their bullpen. And I think yeah. Kenley Jansen is a big part of that. Well, yeah, and we've talked about their their bullpen before, you know, thinking back into I think maybe it was sometime in July uh, when we were discussing, uh, you know, the the weak points of this Dodgers lineup, if there were any, and it was that bullpen. And to see Jansen struggle is certainly a thing. I'm going to go more worried about him, too, and that's because, you know, if you take a look at, at um, Ryu's stats this season, aside from four – let me – actually, let me count that again. Uh, yeah, aside from four games, he's um, – Sorry, let me let me find a better way to phrase this. In all but four of his games, he's allowed three or more runs. But the only problem is when he allows those more runs, three of those are seven. And, you know, two of those games are against Colorado. One was in Colorado. One was against the Yankees, who have one of the better offenses. So he is playing um, some, you know, definitely some uh, high-octane offenses or, and batting lineups uh, in those, you know, games that they've allowed seven runs. But then, of course... You know, the allowing seven to Arizona really sticks out as a bad uh, as a bad game. You know, four point two innings pitched, ten hits, seven earned runs, only had four strikeouts in there as well. Um, you know, I would be more worried about Jansen just because Ryu. You know, it, it is more recent, so you would think, okay, if these struggles are you know what we're getting right now, this is the bad time to have him. Whereas Jansen, we've seen it for months, so we've kind of known that this has been coming, as you were saying, back until the beginning of July. Um, so the, the only reason I would kind of maybe lean towards uh, Ryu Moore is because this is more recent and we thought that this was a strength and now it's not a strength. But um, it is spotty a little more with Ryu, as I said, with those four starts of, of above, you know, three earned runs. Um, but, you know, it, it will be interesting. Uh, when's his next start slated for? Do you have that up right now? Because uh, that's something we're um, definitely going to need to watch uh, coming up soon. It might be tonight. Oh, no kidding. It. Um, so he might be pitching right now, to be honest. Let me see. Probable pitchers. No, he is being skipped in the rotation. Uh, he's not pitching tonight, tomorrow, or the next day. Okay. Uh, we have the Walker Bueller pitching tonight, Ross Stubbling tomorrow, Rich Hill, and then their TBD, TBD gotcha. uh, moving forward. So uh, he's not. Well, they're giving him some the, time. It does look like it. Yes. Scratch from his start. Tomorrow against the Orioles to give him t- time for there rest. You go. So there you go. Yeah. Um, no so need he's to put him out there uh, against the O's. No, I mean at this point, as if you know the Orioles could really threaten him. But, right. You know, I think at this point of the season, you're just worried about him being you know comfortable. You have tons of, of starting pitching depth uh, in that Dodgers system. You're you're comfortable uh, going with some other guys uh, moving forward. Ross Stripling, you know, not necessarily great numbers, uh, but you know. Uh, 
13 starts this year, 15 relief appearances. He's capable of stretching out and being a starter if they need him, giving him four or five innings. Um, so, you know, yeah. they're, they're fine doing that for the rest of the season. It really just comes down to the postseason. Uh, if you're comfortable, do you start Hinju Jin Ryu game one? If, it, if it's the game one's tomorrow, do you start him game one or, or are you going with Kershaw or Bueller? I just think because of an experience and how comfortable I feel I would go Kershaw, but that's also, mm-hmm. I mean, I just feel like he's, you know, He's been he's been there more. He's he's the reliable top pitcher that we all know. Of course, his numbers are a little um, you know off kilter this season as opposed to what his apex has been in his career. But I would probably tend to lean more to him. Um, you know, in just a, a I guess of a uh, seniority type. Um, mm-hmm. But but yeah, with, with Ryu, I mean the 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 stronger your strengths are, the easier it is to disguise your weaknesses. And the starting mm-hmm. pitching rotation is a strength, and Ryu is the has really this season been the forefront of that strength. So getting him back into rhythm more uh, is going to be extremely important to kind of mask the woes of the bullpen. If you can get your starters consistently going through six, maybe even seven innings, to where your bullpen is limited to to the uh, opportunity of failure. So, um, seeing seeing how Ryu finishes out the season, uh, hopefully he can get some bounce back starts where that ERA can drop a little bit lower. Because I mean, like you said in the last month, that you know raising an entire point is is very alarming. Absolutely, and if you know, just saying uh, hypothetically, if the Nats were to move on to the second round uh, and face the Dodgers in the National League Division Series, which they are the odds-on favorite to do, so we'll just roll with that hypothetical for a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Ryu would start one of those first three games. Whether you think it's going to be Kershaw, whether you think it's going to be Bueller, yeah. uh, game one, game two, you know, conceivably Ryu's going to be in one of those first three games. It'd be hard to imagine uh, them pushing him all the way back to that fourth spot and letting a guy like Kenta Maeda start before oh, him. Yeah. That's, there's no, no chance of that. Um, a case could be made for the other two, but... Anywhere in those three games, he's going to face off against either Max Scherzer, Patrick Corbin, or Steven Strasburg. And at this point, uh, I would pick any of those three Nats starters over Ryu uh, with Scherzer. And, and obviously, so still working his way back up to form. He did pretty well in his last start, only allowed one run over six innings, uh, had a good game. So he's looking to make that step, you know, just under 100 pitches. Uh, so he's finally, uh, I think, at the point where he's able to go full throttle in his next start. So we'll see whether or not he can do that. Um, but Scherzer, a Cy Young candidate, you know, proven resume. Uh, certainly, I would pick him over Ryu. Strasburg has been healthy all year. A Cy Young candidate in his own right. Uh, certainly more of a dark horse than uh, Ryu or, or Scherzer is. But somebody who's who's on the fringe is going to get some Cy Young votes this year. Um, I would take him over Ryu at this point. And I would take Corbin. Even though Corbin's been a little, little bit more inconsistent, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. When he's bad, he certainly blows up. In his last start, uh, he, he really did struggle. But the reason I take Corbin is because he's a lefty. And the Dodgers lineup is stacked with left-handers. And, and their splits mm-hmm. against lefties this year are not great. Uh, so I think Corbin presents a huge opportunity for the Nats uh, should they start him against the Dodgers, uh, considering he's a southpaw. So I would take him over you as well. Uh, And that just puts you in a hole. You you were expecting this guy to be somebody who would give you the undoubted uh, matchup advantage uh, in terms of pitching. But as far as as, 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 his play is concerned, there's just a lot of concerns uh, that I have. Uh, considering he's not a high strikeout guy, he's somebody who relies on finesse and, and uh, getting ground balls and, and placing uh, the pitches in exactly the right spots because he doesn't throw for high velocity either. Uh, so, you know, 
it, when that's not working, it becomes very hittable. Uh, you have to be really good. We've seen it with Kyle Hendricks before. Uh, you know, he was a Cy Young contender two years ago. Last year, uh, regressed a little bit. Has been better this year, to his credit. Uh, and I think he, especially at home, has been uh, a really good pitcher this season. Does struggle a little bit on the road, um, but. You know, for these guys who who rely on ground balls, who rely on making weak contact and uh, really placing their pitches well, if you're not feeling it, if if you know there's fatigue, that really messes with your location, and you become a lot more hittable. So, uh, you know, if Ryu continues this trend, the Dodgers are in real trouble now. Uh, I did say Jansen was was the player that I'm more concerned yeah. <laughs> with, um, and and I do think that just because of who's around him, you know, the the, the Dodgers, even if they do drop a Ryu start. Uh, you know, they still have Walker Buehler that they're setting out there. They still have Clayton Kershaw. That's that's still putting you in an opportunity to win the ball game, regardless of who's on the mound for the other team, whether that be the Nats and their their gauntlet of starters, whether that be the Cubs uh, and their guys who maybe have underperformed a little bit this year, but still have the postseason resumes that you know stand for themselves. Uh, the the you look at the. Um, Diamondbacks who traded Granky, you know, they're going to have the advantage. You know, I really like the Diamondbacks, by the way, and the play that they've had. Uh, I think they could sneak in for that second wild card spot. The Mets uh, in their really deep rotation. The, the Dodgers still stack up against all of those teams. Uh, so the point where even if you do lose a Ryu start, you, you're certainly still in a position to win other games with how deep your lineup is and how well your uh, pitchers match up. But that being said, the bullpens, you know, it's just kind of fair game uh, for all of these teams, you know, whether it be the Nats who uh, have one of the worst bullpen ERAs in, in, in MLB history or uh, the, the Braves who added some guys to the deadline who have been pretty impressive. Shane Green's coming into his own. Mark Belanson has been nails uh, in that closer role aside from that one blown save he had in his first appearance in the ninth inning with the Braves. Uh, he's been great since. So, you know, overall, uh, it, it just it seems to me like that is a, a glaring issue for this Dodgers team that the front office really surprisingly didn't address. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Dodgers are not a team that have been afraid to pull the trigger on uh, strengthening a strength or, or, or going all in on a player who really fills a hole. You know, we saw them do it with Darvish last year. Uh, it, it was a huge move for them at the time. They, they got, uh, or sorry, that was two years ago. Uh, and then last year they go for Manny Machado. You know, these are those are big name guys. They really didn't make a move. You know, they, you know, they didn't really make a big move like that at the deadline. And I, I think that's going to come back to haunt them. Hey, don't call it an upset, but there might be an upset. I mean, I mean, the case that you made is great, and it's it's one of those things that you just don't want to have your your best players trending downward at this time of the year. And you think about the flip side of it, and that's just because you know the majority of my baseball content that I get is on the Yankees and. And all year I've been pissed about how Aaron Judge has been playing. It hasn't been awful, but it hasn't been, you know, great Aaron Judge. And just over the last month, I think he's jumped from, you know, nine home runs to 21. Uh, he, he's found his rhythm, you know, uh, you know, offensively. And it's just one of those things where it's like, okay, as long as he carries that momentum into the postseason, I don't care about those four, first four months. If it can get us deep in the postseason, whereas, you know, Ryu had that great start and everyone was thinking, oh my God, he's going to be this Cy Young winner. And then he drops apart, probably not going to win that award. He definitely probably, I I mean, I think you agree with me as well. I I know that you've been riding this bandwagon for a while that he is not the NL Cy Young winner this year. And now on top of that, he's not carrying that momentum that he had back in, in May and June into the postseason. And yeah, for the Dodgers, that's going to be a scary thing with a lot of these other teams in the National League really gaining momentum uh, into the postseason. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the Dodgers are just looking at their really deep farm system, which, to their credit, they've been able to develop Whew. despite being among the best teams in the league. I mean, yeah. they look at guys like Dustin May and Gavin Lux, who are among the top prospects in baseball, as their kind of midseason acquisitions. Um, so they really didn't, yeah. I guess they didn't feel like they needed to make those moves. But, you know, Dustin May isn't going to be starting any postseason games. No. And, and Gavin Lux certainly uh, has a lot to prove in order to, to you know, get a spot um, in um, – you know, any kind of regular playing time, uh, you know, obviously with expanded rosters, they're able to keep him on uh, in the month of September, but, you know, he's only batting 150 so far. What is that, three for 20 uh, to start his career? So it's not like he's, you know, off to a roaring start. Now, of course, he's a rookie, a lot, a lot of career left ahead of him, and, you know, he's certainly the future at second base uh, for them. Um, but at the same time, you know, those aren't guys that are necessarily going to make huge impacts right off the bat. They're not; they're unproven rookies. Uh, you can't really rely on them. Uh, you know, they, they did that with Luis Urias a couple of years ago when he was 19. He came up and made some big appearances for them, uh, and they certainly benefited from that. But it's a risky move, and uh, in, in one where if you aren't putting proven major leaguers uh, into these spots, uh, it's going to come back to hurt you. I mean, look what the the Cubs got: Nick Castellanos. Yeah, uh, it's just geez. been absolutely incredible for them. A game changer, really, in the outfield. Now, you know, the Cubs are in trouble losing Javier Baez to a fractured finger. They're not sure if he's going to be playing uh, down the stretch. I, if, if, if Javi Baez doesn't play another game, I don't see them uh, making any kind of postseason run whatsoever. Never mind, you know, they might not even make the postseason with how well the Diamondbacks have been playing and how light Arizona's schedule is through the rest of the year. I could easily see the Cubs falling out of contention. Um, but at the same time, I'm just, you know... There, there are some holes in this Dodgers team. We've, we've talked about super teams in the past, and, and I, I just I think this team doesn't necessarily stand out to me as the best uh, that we've seen uh, from the Dodgers the past couple years. I mean, you know, they last season were off to one of the best starts in MLB history. I think they were on like a 130-win pace at some point. Uh, midway through the year, they were, uh, Sports Illustrated put out a cover calling them the best team in baseball. Uh, and then they went on that terrible stretch to close the season uh, where they really struggled and we weren't really sure, you know, if – uh, they were still that same team that they were, but they, they proved that they were that same team. They made it all the way to the World Series, you know, ultimately struggled against the Red Sox, but uh, had a great postseason in their own right. Um, you know, this team, to me, it there, there are just some holes. And, uh, you know, between Ryu and Jansen, uh, there's a couple of reasons right there of guys who you should be relying on, guys who you're paying to rely on, mm-hmm. uh, who just really aren't going to, don't look like they're going to be able to live up to the bill in the postseason. Yeah. Hey. Buckle up, man. How many, how many games? How many games left do we have in the regular season? Oh, let's see. The Dodgers are ninety-three and fifty-two, which gives them one hundred and forty-five games played. So that's seventeen left to play. Look at that! Look uh, at you, you mathematician. No, that's. I think that's wrong. No, that's right. Yeah, yeah that's I think right. You did seventeen that. games left to play. So, um, including tonight's game, which. Currently, let's see the scoreboard. They're up seven to nothing on yeah. the. Uh, <laughs> Tickle me surprised. So, yeah, they're they're not struggling. So, um, all right. Well, that's going to do it for our show today, Blake. Unless you got anything left on the Dodgers you wanted to touch on? No, I'm feeling good, man. I feel like we covered all the bases there. All right, cool. Well, we said we wanted to get the show in in an hour fifteen. We're at an hour sixteen and a half right now. So I'll take it. I'd say yeah, that's pretty good. Um, well, don't forget everybody to like and subscribe or, or rate and subscribe. Excuse me. Get throw us five stars. Uh, we are now on iTunes. We are now on Spotify, and we are on Google Music. I believe. Look at that. Podcast, Diversity. Like that. Finally. 
got us around to uh, adding us uh, those. We've been on uh, Apple Podcasts for a while, but yeah. finally got us on Spotify. Found out it takes all of five seconds to do. So, right, which is... You know, <laughs> Of course, we didn't do that earlier, but yeah. hopefully, you know, wherever you get your podcasts, you can now check us out. So go ahead and do that. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter. I'm at Matt Wyrick FBB, where I write about the Nats and uh, lots of things. DC wrote my first Redskins article over the weekend, so Ooh. that was fun. Um, you know, NBC is putting me to work, so I uh, had a lot of fun uh, watching football with the folks over there. Uh, excited to keep doing that. And Blake, you're at Blake Andrew Pace, uh, yes. where you can find your content for Stampede blue covering the Colts and that name of the Syracuse blog I can never remember. Yep, don't waste your time. Just say just say <laughs> Troy Nunez. That's all you need to Troy say. Troy Nunez. I, yeah, I, I can't go. even remember the name half the time, but yeah. you know what? Syracuse, Blake, you, you know the drill. Exactly. Uh, yes. So, alright, well, that's going to do it for our episode. Thank you all so much for listening. Blake, any final words for the good people? No, get ready. Week 2 football coming up. we got to have some great content coming through Friday, taking a look at the upcoming uh, slate of games, and, and maybe oh, looking yeah, into we got some, that new segment. some gambling stuff in there, too. We're going to get our hands on losing money, so I'm, I'm interested in seeing how that goes. Well, anybody who knows both Blake and I knows we are very good at losing money, so uh, <laughs> you like guys are nothing. in for... <laughs> you guys are in for some uh, interesting segments coming moving forward. But that's going to do it for us. Again, thank you all so much for listening, and have a good one.